This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book and is one of the series under the title of Saul, who also is called Paul. This evening we're departing from our usual exposition of the scriptures as such in order that we may get the benefit of um, an acquaintance with the background, the religious background of Saul of Tarsus. It's one thing for a person to stand in a pulpit or sit in a pew. It's another thing to know his home life and the circumstances of his upbringing because they constitute a great part of the man's makeup. And when we know that he himself said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a persecutor of the church, and then we find him suddenly the bond slave of Jesus Christ, devoting himself even unto death and bonds to take the gospel to the very hated Gentile. Nothing but the grace of God can answer the question how and why. Now this um, picture that you see, if we can call it a picture, hanging there, is an old master, <laughs> because I did it about 60 years ago. I've just found, of course. But at the Whitechapel Art Gallery, they assembled from all the synagogues and private collections in the East End of London, a whole exhibition manifesting the regalia, the things that were used by the Jews in the progress of their religion, their fasts and their feasts and everyday observances. And I just went round the exhibition with a notebook and took, took a few pencil notice, notes. And then I got into hot water with a landlady with whom I was staying for doing this painting up in the bedroom. I think she wanted to get out into the sheets and the blankets and whatnot up there. But there it is. Uh, you may not be able to see it too well where you sit, but there's plenty of opportunity afterwards to come forward if you feel you must. But I hope everyone has got this um, um, little reduction of it. Because, oh yes, because, um, leave it down there, mummy, please, till I want it. Um, this will enable you to just follow without uh, straining your eyes too much at the picture and then afterwards you can make it your own as you feel best. Now we start with this very top corner and I'll go across as best I can but I'll give you the number that I'm dealing with so that you can locate the object on your sheet. This is called number one a toleth or you might pronounce it a tolus. It, it depends on uh, what uh, aspect, what part of the Jewish people you belong to. Tolus. Or a prayer shawl. A prayer shawl. Now if you will look at Numbers, chapter 15, 38 and 39. Numbers, what is that, 15... 38 and 39, we might get just a hint. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make their men fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generation and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue and it shall be unto you for a fringe 
that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. That ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which ye go a whoring. That ye may remember and do all the commandments and be holy unto the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. But that doesn't refer exclusively to the prayer cloth. But it draws attention to the covering that is used in these uh, sacramental clothings, that they are reminding them that they belong to the Lord and should not uh, sort of treat these things lightly. Now the word tolis, tolis, has got a peculiar character about it in this sense, that the Hebrew language and the Greek had no figures. We today use the Arabic figures. And I've met people who don't know how we came to get them. They're geometrical. Look, that's one, and that's two, and that's three, and that's four angles, and that's five, six, eight is, you know, two squares. That's, ge- that's ge- geometry. But they hadn't got any figures. They used the alphabet. So in Greek, alphabet, gamma, delta is one, two, three, four. And in the Hebrew, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dali, the same letters, one, two, three, four. So the word Abba, would add up to one and two and two and one, see, like that. Well now, it so happens that the uh, great rabbi, Maimonides, uh, went through the Old Testament scriptures and, so far as he was concerned, satisfied himself that there were 613 positive and negative precepts of the law of Moses. Well now, this is the point. The word tolus adds up to 600. 600. And the Jewish people had a feeling that they would like it to add up to 613. So that when they put the prayer cloth over their head, they were covered with a symbol of having obeyed every commandment of the Lord, positive and negative. You may say, well, what a strange idea. Well, we're not criticising them, we're just finding out their approach. Now, how are they going to get 13 added to the 600? Well, if you look at your uh, picture, uh, you could hardly see, but you will see on the picture itself, if you go close, that they had threaded into a hole four threads that came back and then made eight, and they put five knots on it. You imagine all this. So eight and five make thirteen. Now they can put on their head the symbol of having kept the whole word of God, positive and negative. Will you give me that one that I knocked down just now? Um, this one I don't know whether you can see it but I'll pass it round so that you can see it being worn and um, I'd like you to turn with regard to this passage into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 chapter 4 but notice this he's very very earnest over this he says in chapter 2 17 For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God but as of sincerity but as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ Would to God that every one of us at all times would speak in the sight of God we should say some things a little different than we do at times but you notice this comes out again this sight of God in chapter 4, 
in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, the next verse is a pity, because in our version, they say, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now, the word hid is the word veiled, and it's referring to this very veil. So, you look back into the uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Seeing then that we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face. And then it says, verse 14, that their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. You see the emphasis upon the veil. Verse 18. But we all now, if they haven't gone and put open face, wouldn't you think that the translators would have said, let's keep the word veil. It's the same word all the time. So, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so we have this emphasis in uh, verse 3 of the next chapter, but if our gospel be veiled, it is veiled by those things which are perishing, not in them that are lost. It's veiled by perpetuating these old things of the law, instead of standing in all the glorious freedom of the grace of Christ. In whom or by which the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. What is he keeping back from them? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Uh, would you just make sure, perhaps uh, Mr. Galatly would make sure that folks can glimpse of that without uh, taking too much of our time, if it's going to be of any value to them. So there we have this veil, covering them when they pray. 613 is its number, and they are typically covered by complete obedience to the law. Now I hope you'll have a little song of praise in your hearts, friends, and you say, well, we haven't got to walk about with that veil over us. We've got the real thing. We are covered with the perfect righteousness of the Son of God that goes even further than 613 precepts of the law. It's a righteousness which is beyond the touch of law. It's a righteousness that will take us right into the presence of a holy God where we should never be able to stand however we may have comported ourselves in this life. So that's one little blip we learn from this picture, I hope. Well, now let's make a move because we've got so many items to consider. Number two is that prominent piece with bells on the top called the mantle of the law. And you will notice, I've got here, it's generally the gift of some wealthy patron. Note the crown, the bells and the breastplate. That's at number 24. Now Israel were without a king and without a sacrifice 
and without an ephod which meant without a priest. There came a time when they became low army, not my people, and they had no key. They're scattered all over the earth. If there's a war they have to fight against their brethren belonging to two kingdoms. They have no priest. But you see what's happened to them? In this mantle of the law, they've got the law of Moses, they've got the crown, can you see the crown in the middle of it? And they've also got a breastplate, number 24. They roll this scroll up, they put the breastplate on it, they put it up underneath this, and it fits into those two bells at the top. So that poor Israel, without a king, without a priest, and without a prophet, they just, does it magnify the law, which after all condemns, because it's not possible by the works of the law to be justified before God. So we must be conscious, you see, that's what the Apostle Paul was brought up to believe. What a revolution took place when he, trusting in his own righteousness, trusting his own obedience to the law, trusting in his Phariseeism, he comes right out more than any writer in the New Testament for justification by faith without the deeds of the law. That's the miracle of grace. Maybe ever remember that we have been entrusted with that same glorious deposit even though we may never quite feel, as Paul must have felt, the marvellous deliverance from this bondage which must have oppressed his soul because being an honest man, he knew that many of the things he did could never make him accepted in the presence of God. How he must have delighted to have written the words, we are accepted in the Beloved. All his righteousness would never have taken him beyond the veil in the temple but we have boldness of access by faith of him. So we are done with all these things. We find that Christ himself is the answer to all life's problems, both here and in the days to come. So we have this uh, mantle of the law. You will see the law itself in uh, with a band across it, right next, which is mark number three. It's almost in the middle of the picture. And uh, while this is not a, a scroll of the law, this is the uh, little book of Esther, you can see something of what it looks like. There it is patiently written with black ink, specially made at Jerusalem, written by a scribe who was dressed orthodoxly, and every time he came to the name of God he wiped his pen and used it again. And even if a king approached him and spoke to him, when he was in the middle of writing a Hebrew word, he ignored the king till he'd finished it. And while I have this before me, I will show you one other feature, which is not quite on our program, but I don't think you will mind the extra. Wait a minute, I've got to find I don't tangle myself up with this. Well, where am I? I've lost myself, all right. There's a feature in this book of Esther that has puzzled some of God's people. The name of God is never mentioned until you see this. And then it's in four different acrostic forms. I've got the mark, but I can't show you that. But what I'm trying to show you is this. Oh, I found it here. I hope you're taking pity on these things. Now then. Can you see what's happened there? 
That's what I was trying to show you. Do you know what that is? They're the names of the sons of Haman, or all hanged on the gathers he prepared for Mordecai. Do you see how the Hebrew would intensify something if he wanted people to look at it carefully? Now, can you understand the Apostle Paul, who knew all about that, in the epistles of the Galatians, he apparently takes the pen from the slave who could do the writing so much better than he could. I think he was a bad writer, but still, I'm in the same boat as Paul there. He said, see with what large characters I've written unto you, with my own hand to impress. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have a little example of the way in which he was brought up and how he used it. And the sacredness in the eyes of a Jew of those roles of prophets, psalms, law. But all oh, what a mess they had to have instead of just a book we have in our printed version today. And so we have the... Um, then leaning on that uh, scroll, double scroll, you'll see two more. Well, they are called the Haftarah, that is to say, the prophets that come separately. So that constitutes the appearance of these scriptures in the days of the Apostle Paul. Not in book form so much, but as scrolls. Well, now we'll, we'll take a little bit further now. The, um, the number five, now, can, where's number five? It's, oh, I see, just like a, a little picture framed immediately behind the two scrolls. Can you see that? Number five? And there's Hebrew word there called Mitzrak. Well, the word Mitzrak is just the word from the rising. From the rising. It was put on the east wall so that when they were praying, they could face the east, looking towards Jerusalem. From the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, thy name shall be great among the Gentiles, you see. And so it says, this was hung on the east wall so that the Jew may know the direction of Jerusalem at prayer time. And there's another Mitzrach, a little bit further, partly eclipsed by the candlestick on the extreme right, which was just the Ten Commandments in a frame. Don't believe that, man. Well now, the next thing to notice is number seven. Immediately behind that first Mitzrach, a plate. And this is a Passover dish. Now, if I had the plate here, which I've got at home, of course, if I had it here, I could show you that it contains the word, um, Pasach, the word for Passover, and the trad traditional shield of David in the uh, picture is a lamb. And this Passover is um, observed, of course, still uh, by the people, although, of course, the slaying of the lamb and the sprinkling of the blood is not uh, observed. So that's another feature which we must keep in mind in relation to the background of the Apostle Paul. The great sacrificial ed emphasis in Paul's upbringing is not laid aside when he comes to preach the gospel of the grace of God. It only intensified. I do wish some folks would realise this, that while we are insisting upon the principle of right division and dispensation of truth, and the revelation of a mystery which was kept secret. I do say this to every one of us. The mystery did not die for us. Dispensational truth was not crucified for us. 
There is no substitute for the person and work of Christ in any calling of God, whether it be law, prophets, psalms, gospels, epistles, or the apocalypse. So, always make that plain to folks, that while they may say, well, you insist very much upon this little minutia here and this little bit there, it's only because we want to understand the complete will of God for us, but it's all based upon that one sacrifice offered for sins forever, and then, as a priest, he sat down, the work accomplished. Now, we go a little bit further. There is also standing, over above those rolls, a ewer and a basin. And that was uh, uh, used by the priest before pronouncing a blessing. It's uh, rather suggestive that you can't bless somebody else with unclean hands. I don't mean to say soiled hands by doing work, but in a spiritual sense. You need a blessing yourself before you can pass it on to somebody else. Oh, I've had any amount of people try to bless me, and I just wonder sometimes whether it wouldn't be a blessing if they had the spiritual washing of their hands first. And so we would treat one another a little bit more reasonably and delicately. And here we have uh, the priest pronouncing the blessing. I note the two hands um, at the rim of the basin. Could you just see at the top two hands like that? Just perhaps you can. And um, if the priest was unable to do that, now some people can't do that, he put his cloth in between to do it, because that was supposed to symbolise the holiness and sacredness of the blessing that was being pronounced. And here again, you see, we've got the Apostle, knowing all these things, he would speak about those, not with unclean hands. There's a, pur- there's a purple cur- curtain, just at the back on this side, uh, that simply uh, covers the ark and the scrolls, in the synagogue, and I think if you know the Hebrew language, you'll see the word Nathan is on it, and the word Nathan means a gift. It was the gift of somebody, his name is there. Then next to that is a lighter curtain with the uh, Morgan David, the double cross, the double triangle. That's the traditional shield of David, the Morgan David, and that is the marriage canopy. When a marriage takes place in the synagogue, the bride and the bridegroom are under a canopy which is supported on sort of poles and uh, it contains the text the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So again you see we've got the uh, that which has to do with the intimate relationship of husband and wife in the marriage in the synagogue and using the um, oh and in the middle of it uh, they've got a bit of Yiddish not uh, um, not uh, pure Hebrew. In the middle of that um, double triangle are the words Mosel Tob. There's only the letter T of the word Tob, but the two, the two words Mosel Tob is just the word good luck. So you can take pure Hebrew or you can have Mosel Tob good luck. And we hope in both cases, many a time, it has been realised by these folks. Um, Or we have a lamp hanging there, and that is called a perpetual lamp, which is hung before the ark. And we have, um, now, I just want to see if I could find that, Babylonian Tavernwood, number 12. Uh, 
Oh, I see. It, it's hardly visible in the black. It's supporting that lampstand. It's a very large volume and is one of the Talmud, which is one of the uh, Jewish writings, uh, the Babylonian edition. And that was lent by the Earl of Crawford, you can see. Now there's a series of charms. Thirteen and fourteen, very little things. One looks like a heart, and the other is a piece of parchment with decorations on it. And um, the silver heart was lent, as you see, by Arthur Franklin, and is made to contain a mezuzah. Oh, you say, what's a mezuzah? Well, we better look then and see number 26. Number 26. I can't see it myself. I haven't got one there, have I? A little tin one, mummy. I've brought a few things along. Yes. All right, well, we'll have to wait. All I can say is that it's a little tidy piece of tin in which is a little piece of Hebrew writing which was put on the doorpost. It should be thy going out and thy coming in. And they used to touch it as they go out of the door. And it suits her. Uh, now where are we next uh, the Hanukkah lamps feast of dedication and the plated candle which you see standing right to the extreme side of the picture in a stand the uh, plated candle called the Havdalah is lit at the end of the Sabbath to show that the law forbidding a fire is passed for another week. And I believe to this day uh, the uh, practice is uh, that a Gentile is employed to see to fires and that over the Sabbath because of this restriction. And at the Havdara that is ended for another week. And then a number 18, right down near the front of this side, the Kiddushka. That's the cup of blessing. You remember the Apostle says, the cup of blessing which we bless. So he's referring to that which he'd often met in his hand uh, in the service uh, as a Jew. The Kiddush cup, the cup of blessing, it's a part of the Havdalah service. The blue cloth upon which it stands is the Halah cloth, bearing the words, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, you'll see that is in the extreme corner at the bottom of the picture there. And uh, a special bread is placed on this to commemorate the double portion of manna which fell on the Sabbath. You see, there's a good deal of uh, type and shadow in these things to remind them. And then there's a spice box. That is right over to the other side, number 19, standing just above that little tiny framed piece. That is to sort of symbolise the um, incense that was burned. So they have a spice box at the end. And then once again there's another, in verse 20, in number 20, a prayer book. Now will you let me have the little, uh, uh, that's, the, that's right, thank you. Now when, this is a, an actual one you see that's been used uh, by Jew going to the synagogue and you see the, act, the actual shield of David, and um, in that um, is the prayer book, which is in both um, 
uh, both English and Hebrew. And the bit that I'm concerned about is the passage here which says, listen to this. Um, I just want to make sure. Oh, here it is. Listen to this. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hath not made me a heathen. That's a Gentile. Remember that Paul, after the age of 14, would have said that prayer every week. Thank God, he says, I'm not a Gentile. Yet he was chosen to be the messenger to the Gentile. What grace. Then the next thing is, following that prayer, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who hath not made me a slave. Well, that's something to be thankful for, isn't it? Now, the next one is, a, is another extraordinary one. Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who hath not made me a woman. If Think of the effect upon a boy at 14, that every time he went to prayer, he, he thanked God he was not made a woman. I think some of the folks who've taken an attitude sometimes against the Apostle Paul ought to thank God that ever he was raised up to give them a deliverance. Now, you'll understand that this is embedded in Galatians. Will you turn to the epistle to the Galatians? Chapter 3. Verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. This man had been under that schoolmaster and now he was brought to Christ. But after that faith is come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now notice this. There. Don't read it like this, friends. There is neither Jew nor Greek. It's there. Where? In Christ. There. In Christ is neither Jew nor Greek. This man had prayed. This very man who wrote this had prayed, I thank God I'm not a Gentile. Now he says, I belong to a company where there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. And he prayed over and over again and thank God he wasn't born a slave. He said, there's neither bond nor free. And then finally, there is neither male nor female. He thanked God he wasn't born a woman. And that's all blotted out still. Don't you see, it makes that live if you know what was the background of it. If the Apostle Paul had been brought up so till he reached manhood and thanked God three times over, and then, oh, what a change. He could write this. That's worth knowing, I think. And it makes us value, I trust, our calling, the better for having seen that that change was there. And we can sympathise with the Apostle's attitude. Well, now... Um, Oh, there's a little scroll of the book of Esther. You can see it's got uh, a little bit of colouring on the margins. Can you see it? That's number 21. And if you look at it closely, when you come to the picture itself, you'll see that there is also, in the ornamentation that's on the margins, the gallows again that was used for the hanging of Mordecai. You may think, well, why do they emphasise these gallows? Well, if you'd lived in those days and knew what that meant and what they'd been delivered from, you may pardon them. Once 
a year when they have the remembrance of this this time in the synagogues, you'll find the, they, at least they used to, I don't know what they do now, Sam will tell you whether they do or not, still, go to the synagogue with rattles, you know those things I have, and when they read out the name Haman, whoa, the old synagogue is rattling with it. What do you say? How strange in a house of God. Never mind. They were delivered from that terrific bondage and that's the way that they sometimes show it. Well now, uh, the, uh, that's the ornamental scroll of Esther used at the Feast of Purim. Then there's a ram's horn trumpet just lying about the middle of the bottom of the picture. A ram's horn trumpet, a shofar that's called, and it is used at New Year and the Day of Atonement. It doesn't give a very uh, wonderful sound. I don't think anybody go out of their way to listen to it as a piece of music, but it's prominent. And uh, with God behind it, a little squeaky ram's horn trumpet was always necessary to bring down the walls of Jericho. So God uses the weak things and despised things of the earth sometimes to frustrate those who think a little bit more of themselves. And then we have a jewelled pointer. That is pointing to the breastplate, number 23, is it? Number 23 and the breastplate are standing together, yes. Well now, the pointer is another evidence of the sacredness of the law of God. So sacred that they didn't trust the reader to read like I am now now. He had to use that special pointer and when he was reading, he must put it on and he must follow the reading. You say, well that's rather slavery. It was a good slavery. It was respecting the word of God. I do remember, do remember our Saviour, who himself was the word, stood up in the synagogue and they gave him the scripture, the role, and he found the place where it was written and he read the portion for the day honouring the word of God and he sat down and said this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears the basis of our faith is the fact that God has spoken it has been recorded by spirit inspired men and we have a fairly faithful translation in the authorised version but value all the helps we can get afterwards but oh what a miss there would be friends if this were to be taken from us what have we to teach us. In what way can we learn the mind and will of God or understand our present position or the glorious hope of the future? So, the, one of the basic tenets of this chapel is the full inspiration of the Scriptures. The deity of Christ, the all-sufficiency of his one great sacrifice and the principle of right division. And that is the basis upon which all our witness is, is uh, founded and I trust that it commends itself to you. A good many people have got vague, peculiar ideas about right division. Only when it's to do with the scriptures. In their business or in their homes they're practising right division all the time. I don't know what the ladies would say if you didn't practice right division and you cooked your dinner in the drawing room and I don't know what, and cleaned your bicycle in the kitchen. There's a place for everything, they tell you. That's right division. And any amount of God's people are taking bits out of the scriptures from all over the book and applying it to themselves 
when they ought to be discovering what park in the house of God is their particular domain, rightly dividing the word of truth. Because there are some that deal with the earth, and some that deal with the blessed hope associated with the heavenly Jerusalem, and some with a position far above all principality of power where Christ sits, and you can't mingle those things and make them work together. They belong to three distinct aspects of the Christian faith. Anyhow, that's in passing. Now the phylacteries are those little square boxes just immediately underneath the pointed finger, number 25. Can you give me, yes. I have here, the, all this uh, not work is to get it round the arm so many times and so on. And you see I've ruined it because the word phylactery is a Greek word that means a charm. They're not called phylacteries in the Old Testament. This Old Testament scripture says that the law of God must be as frontlets before your eyes. God didn't say make frontlets and stick them on your forehead. He said they must be as something that's guiding you all along the pathway of life. And the interpretation was this. You see, now inside there is a perfect little piece of, oh, it's not there, I'm sorry. I had to take it out before, but I opened this to see, and there was a perfectly written little piece of uh, Old Testament, uh, yes, scripture. Here is one out of a larger phylactery. You see? You might imagine that what some people tell you about the Jew, that knowing that no Jew would ever cut them open to see if there was anything in it, that he'd just stuff a bit of paper in. But no, friends, no. You look at that patient writing of the Hebrew. Put inside the phylactery that nobody has ever seen, except a pagan like myself who cut it open to see. So, pass that round too, if you might, don't mind. Thank you. And uh, I don't think you need to see this. This is obvious, just a um, square box placed upon the forehead, placed upon the arm. The phylacteries. Um, the tefillin is the Old Testament word. And perhaps you'd like to look at Deuteronomy 6, 8 to see how it was written and what they did about it. Deuteronomy 6, verse 8. One of our friends, he's not here now, he used to be very very particular to call it Deuteronomy. But I think we generally slip into Deuteronomy. Deuteros is twice. Nomos is the law. The twice told law. Now this is um, uh, 6, 8. 6, 8. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they should be as front bits between thine eyes. You see? Well then they thought, I suppose, well we better have something to remind us of that and they put those little boxes on. Now I have at home, and I haven't brought them with me, two tiny little phylacteries, about that size. You see, the one that you had just now was about two inches. So do you remember the Lord spoke about the Pharisees? They make broad their phylacteries. The broader the phylactery, the more holy the person was. Oh, friends, there's two meanings to the word put on. Put on. Put on the righteousness of Christ. 
But don't put on in the other sense. Because you may deceive yourself, you won't deceive your neighbours. And so, holiness and righteousness is a gift of God and it's symbolised by this um, tefillin. And then, uh, well, uh, what have I got here? The, uh, a bit of unleavened bread is number 28. You see just a, uh, a flat disc with crinkles in it right to the extreme edge at the bottom of that side of the picture. And, of course, you if you ever want any, you've only got to go down to Petticoat Lane and there you will find the baker shops set it as an ordinary matter of commerce, the uh, unleavened bread. And um, we also have a slipper lamp, that one with a curly handle, that is um, used at the anniversary of our father's death and is engraved with the fifth commandment, Honour thy father and thy mother. And the prayer book, which I've shown you just now in that uh, little bag, the prayer book was uh, one that was printed in Cologne at 1525. So that goes back some uh, years. Then there's a, 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 a something lying across the the uh, uh, number 32. It's Mark number 31, and that is the lulabib or the palm, used at the Feast of Tabernacles. Unfortunately, our climate makes the Feast of Tabernacles a very great test for the Jew. But even today, in the East End of London, the Feast of Tabernacles, which comes near the close of the year, you'll find little constructions that look like a booth, little places to sit outside, because the Feast of Tabernacles was now a picture. No more need to protect yourself, no more enemies to worry about. We have now reached the peace that was the purpose of God at the beginning and uh, spoiled by the advent of sin. So we have the... Um, and at the bottom there are little pockets at that. Um, you'll have to see them in the picture itself, I think. Little pockets at the end of that uh, lunabim or palm for the uh, holding of sprigs of willow and myrtle. Then there's a, a, a what looks like a, a lemon. That is um, number 32, right down to the very bottom in the corner. Um, a citron used at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then hanging up at the top on that side is a little tallis worn by children. Years ago I remember going down seeing two or three boys and that playing in the street, one of the back streets off uh, the Whitechapel Road, and sticking out from his shirt was one of these little tallis. They wore them more or less a sort of a lucky charm than anything else, I suppose. And so I've got one hanging there. Then we have um, in number 34, where is that? Oh, the, 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 just the edge of it is shown where the ram's horn trumpet is sticking out, the cover for the reading desk, and then there's a text. The text at the bottom of the picture, in a frame. It reads, Shalu, Shalom, Arushalom. Sounds almost the same words again. Shalu is pray. Shalom is peace, Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. A part of the purpose of God hinges upon the peace of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
Thou that stonest the prophets that said unto thee, How often would I have gathered thy children as a chicken gathers under her wings, and ye would not. Ye shall not henceforth see me until he shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the prophet says, They shall look upon me whom they pierced, and they shall mourn for me as one mourns for his only son. And then the day will dawn, when sorrow and sighing shall pass away, and you and I will enter into our glorious heritage, which is not a renewed earth, it will be a blessed place to be in on earth in those days. And it will not be in that bejeweled and golden city, which is the bride of the Lamb, for we are members of the body of Christ, and our inheritance is higher even than the heavenly Jerusalem. It is in heavenly places. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every blessing that is spiritual in heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And no argument in the world can help, can make us step down from that God-given position. For we're not worthy of the least, so we might as well, by the mercy of God, take the best. And that's what we have to offer in this chapel. The highest calling that's made known in the scriptures. And yet, to thousands of real, earnest, God-loving, Bible-loving Christians, it's almost unknown. It may be that it's all under the control of God. For it says they were elect and they were predestinated to the position. It doesn't shut anybody out from redemption or salvation but the callings and the sphere of their blessing are under the perfect control of God. Well now, I hope you don't think that I've wasted the time this evening. I apologise to you if I have. Uh, and uh, we pick up once more when the meetings go on week by week for the open book. This was just a little diversion and I hope that you realise that if that was the background of the Apostle Paul, as he must be, for he was an earnest advocate for these things, what a marvellous deliverance he must have enjoyed. And what grace is at our disposal that he can turn a man like that to a self-satisfied Pharisee, to the humble and yet majestic, the apostle to the Gentiles to whom we owe so much.